Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back. So I'm here with another solo episode. I haven't done one in so long, and now suddenly it's like back to back. But here we are. So um, it is, as many of you know, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And as you know, I am a fierce advocate for women in particular who suffer emotional abuse. And I talk a lot about emotional abuse on uh, my podcast here, (laughs) this right here, this is the podcast, and on Instagram and social media. And most of my clients are suffering from some form of emotional abuse. And it's something that, first of all, the most important thing that you need to know is that emotional abuse is a form of domestic violence. It is not something different. The National Center for Domestic Violence, the, you know, the hotline, if you go to the hotline.org and you scroll through like what is abuse, they've got an incredible website, by the way. Emotional abuse is a form of domestic violence. And I got to tell (laughs) you, It's taken me years to come to terms with and accept the fact that that's that I am a victim of domestic violence, right? Like it sounds so, um, God, it sounds so dramatic and like, no, 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 no. I was just emotionally abused. I just had this like coercive, controlling, um, manipulative, you know, all, all of those things, right? But it wasn't like, it wasn't domestic violence. And I still have trouble sort of making that correlation for myself. And, but that's the point, right? It's the othering that we do. It's the like, no, 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 it's not me. Like, no, 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 no. I'm not really abused. I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a victim. All of that stuff. And, you know, I hear a lot of people saying like, I don't want to identify myself as a victim. I'm a survivor. It's like, okay, yes, I, yes, I am a survivor because I've been out of it for 13 years. I am absolutely a survivor, but I was a victim. And I think for many of us, owning our victimhood is actually really important I don't think we can call ourselves survivors until we have owned the fact that we're victims. And that's so much harder. And it's like, you know, oh, but I want to be empowered. I don't want to feel like a victim. Listen, it is fucking powerful to own victimhood. It's one of the most powerful things that you can do. 
to say, oh my God, yes, me, me. I was a victim. And it, you know, and I, and I get the sort of juxtaposition of that, right? That like, how can it be powerful or empowering to own or call yourself a victim? I am not talking about chronic victimhood. I am talking about acceptance. Because, you know, look, like, like, like getting sober or, you know, healing from any addiction or whatever, right? We have to first admit our powerlessness. We're powerless over alcohol. We're, you know, if we're codependents, we're powerless over people, places, and things, right? Like owning and understanding and surrendering to what we're powerless over is the beginning of healing. And the same is true of accepting and healing and becoming a survivor of any kind of abuse is to first recognize our victimhood in it. That's one thing. Um, So it's, you know, as I, when I, when I sit here and I say to you, hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a survivor of emotional abuse. And to have embraced the idea that I was a victim of emotional abuse and a victim of domestic violence. Whoa, that's really hard. Still, guys, still. And remember, I'm almost 13 years out. So it's still hard for me to, a hard pill for me to swallow. And it's a hard pill for me to be public about, right? Because um, (laughs) if you guys have been listening to my podcast for a while, you may notice there's like an arc here where I've sort of been in the beginning, I was sort of vague and I, you know, wouldn't really talk about my ex in those terms quite as much or I, I would sort of couch it a little bit, right? Soften it. Cushion it. (laughs) Like cushions on a couch, right? So that's how I would kind of do it, right? And then lately, I have just become, I have gotten to the point where I I have no more fucks left to give. And part of this is because one time, Right. The, my my hesitancy early on was that back in 20, I want to say 14, 20, I don't know, something like that. 2013, I wrote an article. I, I, I wrote it for my blog and it was picked up by the Huffington Post. And in it, I exposed my ex for being an emotional abuser. And. I didn't know that it was going to get picked up by the Huffington Post in the way that it was. It was sort of confusing. Um, It's not really relevant, but it was. And then it kind of went viral. And my ex found out about it very quickly. And it caused so much damage. And frankly, I got in a lot of trouble. (laughs) I got in trouble. And because, of course, you know, and I got in trouble in the comments, y'all, you know, and I wrote a follow up piece called Because We Don't Have Bruises, which I actually published anonymously because of the amount of trouble I got into uh, for speaking my truth. Right. And my thought at the time was I remember getting an email from my ex's boss saying, when did you become such a horrible person? And I was like, I'm I'm the horrible person. I, I I described in detail the emotional abuse that I suffered in my marriage, and I'm the horrible person, right? And I thought, 
If I had exposed him as a violent physical abuser, would I be the horrible person? I mean, maybe in some circles, but probably not. Probably people would think that he's the horrible person and I'm the victim, right? And so I was not allowed. There was so much trauma that came after that event that I sort of went back into the shadows and I'm like, I can't talk about it publicly and I need to be careful and I need to, you know, all of this stuff. And then also there was my son and like, okay, like, am I ever going to, does my son need to hear this? Like if, if, if by some, you know, miracle, my son decides that he wants to start listening to my podcast, which, you know, so far hasn't happened really then like, I'm going to have to contend with that. And yeah, I am. It is true. And, you know, I we have had a lot of conversations about this, he and I, and, you know, he has come to me on a number of occasions and asked me a lot of really hard questions that I have had to um, answer in the most honest way that I can, that doesn't throw us out under the bus, but still holds my experience as being being true. You know, one of the things that I say to my clients all the time, especially my clients who are being gaslit and who are being uh, emotionally abused, is that you are never going to agree on the narrative. So he will have some, he'll have his narrative um, about how crazy you are or how miserable you've made him your entire life or how you've abused him, whatever. He will have that narrative and you can't control it. And that's a really, really, really tough pill to swallow. But by the same token, you get to have your narrative and you get to tell whoever the fuck you want, whatever the fuck you want. You want to think about it carefully. You don't want to, you know, say things to your children that are going to harm them. You know, you're going to tell your nosy neighbors maybe a uh, a version of this that is far uh, less specific <laughs> than you might tell um, your closest friends and family. Um, but you get to have a narrative and you get to own it, right? Your story is what happened to you. And as long as you are really doing the work and you are invested in your own truth and you are processing and not, um, you know, if you're telling everybody what happened and owning your narrative to the point where you're like, you know, the town crier about your situation because you want to be uh, you want somehow somehow you want like vindication and, and you want to justify everything and all of that and um, and revenge. Right. Then like, no. <laughs> right. That's not probably the healthiest thing for you to be doing. But it's also not healthy for you to. Um, sweep things under the rug and allow yourself to be painted in a way that's not fair or true by someone who has hurt you and abused you. You know, I guess part of what I'm saying is I got in trouble for speaking publicly about my situation a long time ago, and so I stopped doing it. Hello, coercive control. (laughs) Hello, same dynamics that happened in my marriage, right? Like, oh my gosh, right. Get me in trouble. Um, make me feel bad and scared and all of the things, and then I'll shut up and uh, nobody will have to know. So you may notice that more recently I have been speaking a little bit more publicly about it, and it's all part of my healing. It's part of my own personal journey. It's part of my own growth. You know, here we are. For this Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I am really working on shedding light 
on emotional abuse because that is my wheelhouse. That is what I've experienced. That is what I help women with. Um, I help them come to terms with the fact that that's what they're going through. So much of the work that we do in my Facebook group is around helping women identify um, emotional abuse, um, come to terms with with that the fact that that's what's happening to them. Most of what I do in my private practice is helping women identify and heal from emotional abuse. This is kind of my thing. This is my um, my torch. Is this emotional abuse piece? And we saw this really clearly in the last couple of months as the Gabby Petito case gained so much traction. And, you know, there are a few things I want to say about Gabby Petito. Uh, The main thing that I want to say is that any survivor of domestic violence or emotional abuse who watched the the video um, of their traffic stop in Moab, any survivor of emotional abuse watched that. And to all of us, the signs were so clear, you guys. The signs were so clear. We could see it so clearly. What you see is a woman who has essentially lost her grip. And when you see a woman who is so emotional and out of control, this woman is hyperventilating. She's hyperventilating. And then her partner is calm and cool as a cucumber and sort of laughing it off and like, yeah, I don't know what's wrong with her. She has some mental problems. And whenever you see that that level of um, distortion or dissonance or juxtaposition of, you know, one person is really super calm and the other person's out of their fucking mind, most likely it's a case of emotional abuse and gaslighting. And we talk about gaslighting a lot, right? We talk about it, we throw the term around a lot. And that's because, by the way, it happens a lot. But I want us to actually dig in and really understand what this is, what this is that we're talking about. Gaslighting. First of all, it comes from uh, a movie, I think it was 1939, where in which there is a, um, a husband and a wife <laughs> and he keeps dimming the gas lights because their house is run on gas <laughs> lighting. And he keeps dimming them. And then she keeps saying, whoa, what happened to the lights? And he's like, what are you talking about? And then he dims them again. And she's like, what happened to the lights? And he's like, y- are you OK? Like, There's nothing happening with the lights. And it goes on and on and on to the point where she actually loses her mind. So it is a it is a long and slow process of him denying her reality that he is creating. Okay, and that's the really important part. So he creates and distorts her reality and then he denies it. And then she starts to doubt her own perception of reality and the truth. And to the point where she loses her grip on reality entirely. 
And that is what we see with Gabby Petito. That's what we see in some of the most extreme cases of emotional abuse. I have a client recently who I was very, very concerned about because she was in a horribly, violently, emotionally uh, abusive marriage. And she was getting out, but she was staying in the house. And I kept saying, like, you got to get out. You got to get out. Like, this is dangerous, emotionally dangerous for you. And it was one call where she started to sound like she was losing it. And her reality, her grip on reality was actually starting to slip. And she sounded like she was starting to go insane. Like there, it was just like a, a grain of it that I went, oh, fuck. And I mentioned it to her and I said, listen, I need to tell you that this is what I'm hearing. And she said, you know, my brother said the same thing. And I said, OK. And she was out within within a couple of weeks. And the next time I spoke to her, she was back, <laughs> you know, but listen, it it's a it was a it's a fine fucking line. It's a fine fucking line because another five minutes in that house and I think she would have she would have tipped over that edge. This is why emotional abuse is so serious. And this is why they say that emotional abuse can be far more devastating than physical abuse because it is the mental trickery. It's the mental fuckery. It's the losing of your own sense of reality that is so scary. And so with Gabby Petito, we saw this woman who was completely out of her mind, hyperventilating and taking responsibility. It's me. It's me. I did it. I know it's it's me. It's me. It's my fault. It's my fault. Here is what we mean. When when we <laughs> with the calls for defunding the police, which I think needs a rebrand because I don't think it's it's not about defunding it's about shifting funds away from policing and into some more mental health arenas for example if the moment it became clear that this was a domestic issue which they did they identified it as a domestic issue but they de- but they identified him as the victim, right? But the second it was identified as a domestic issue, if there was a branch of the police that was called in, right? If as soon as they say, oh, it's a domestic issue, hold on, we need to shift this out of away from the police and to our domestic task force, which is made up of social workers and people who are trained in identifying these things, because look, cops can't be trained in everything. <laughs> like They can't be trained in recognizing the signs of of abuse and and this and I mean they can be but like we're not doing it by the way we have not shifted the funding into training them for all of these things but it's also unreasonable to assume that you know they should be specialists in all of these things they just shouldn't right so if we had shift if we could shift funding away from police interventions and put it more into mental health stuff the second the police in Moab identified that Gabby Petito was perhaps the um, aggressor and the perpetrator of emotional uh, abuse or there was a domestic happening. They had called someone who specialized in it. They would have come in and been like, "Okay, actually, he is not 
the uh, victim here. This looks like a clear case of gaslighting. We need to get her separated from him and we need to get some interventions for her because she's clearly the one who is in emotional distress. We need to get her some help so that she can come down and we can find out what's really going on. And, you know, look, she may be alive. It's possible that Gabby Petito would still be alive if that was done. It's fucking tragic. It's tragic, but it's also preventable. It's preventable. One of the things that I want to help women understand and men if they are being abused. So listen, it's the it's mostly I mean, I think the numbers are around 90 percent mostly men who are perpetrating abuse on women. I get all the messages and emails and everything telling me that men are abused too. Yes, I know. Thank you so much. But the numbers are far weighted in the other direction. So if you are a man and you are listening to this, I say this all the time, if you're a man who's listening to this and you are a victim, I absolutely want to support you too. I support victims. <laughs> and if you're listening to this, you know, you know what I'm about and you know my stance and you know that you just need to switch switch genders when I talk about this stuff. I am speaking to you if you are being um, victimized as well. The number of, of female victims far outweighs the number of male victims. So one of the things that I like to help women and or victims understand is not just what emotional abuse looks like, because it looks different everywhere. Some abusers are, <laughs> some of them are really kind of like obvious and not that skilled at being covert. Some of them, like my ex-husband, are so good at it because they would never say outright things like, you know, you can't uh, work or, you know, you're getting fat or like any of the things right, that are sort of obvious. It is the super subtle emotional twisting of your sense of reality, right? It is the, when we have a conversation, I'm going to sit you down and I'm going to explain to you why you're wrong, because that's the way that you, there's a great line or section in Lundy Bancroft's Why Does He Do That?, where, she, where he talks about an abusive man who is adept in the language of feeling can make his partner feel crazy by turning each argument into a therapy session in which he puts her reactions under a microscope and assigns himself the role of helping her. He may, for example, explain to her the emotional issues she needs to work through or analyze her reasons for mistakenly believing that he is mistreating her. Let me tell you all, that is my marriage. In a nutshell, that's my marriage. What it feels like is this constant, okay, what am I doing wrong? Okay, am I, I, it's me. It's me. It's me. It's what Gabby Petito was saying. No, 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 it's me. You don't understand. It's just because I have issues. I have OCD, so obviously I'm the problem. I have um, mental issues. I have childhood trauma um, and I have and I have childhood wounding and I have and so I have to. OK, so I'm going to twist myself into a pretzel. I'm going to call another therapist. OK, I'm going to do another workshop. OK, I'm going to do this. I am going to do one. Th and if I could just there's just one thing around the corner. There's one more thing. None of it's working so far, but there's just one more thing that I can do to make it right so that he'll stop. 
And what I want to say to you is no, there isn't. There is nothing more that you can do that will make him stop because he doesn't want to stop. Stopping is not part of the bargain here because it's a moving target. As soon as you do that one thing, as soon as you do the one thing that he told you that you should do to make him stop, then there's something else. There's always, always something else. Another thing that Lundy Bancroft says is abuse grows from attitudes and values, not feelings. So this has nothing to do with his feelings. Lundy says the roots are ownership. The roots of emotional abuse are ownership. The mistaken belief that he owns you in some way, right? There is this patriarchal, deeply rooted belief that somehow a man owns his wife. And look, we support this by taking their names, right? We become theirs. There's so many ways in which our culture supports this notion that when we you know, marry a man, or when we get into um, relationship with him, suddenly we are his. I mean, look at like, they call us baby, right? My woman, like all of these things, right? And it is the roots are ownership. And then Lundy says the trunk, you know, that grows out of those roots, the trunk of this is entitlement entitlement. I deserve a woman who no wife of mine is gonna, right? They're entitled to you being, looking, behaving, all of those things in particular ways. And again, some of them are really skilled at creating a really twisted, manipulative um, narrative around this that makes you think that they're helping you or that they're really just trying to work on the marriage. But if it looks or feels like he's entitled to something from you, that's abuse. And then Lundy goes on to say that the branches are control, right? Because that's those are the tools, control. Control, control. Lundy also says, I want to read the rest of uh, the rest of these bullet points. Abuse and respect are opposites. Abusers cannot change unless they overcome their core of disrespect towards their partners. Abusers are far more conscious of what they are doing than they appear to be. However, even their less conscious behaviors are driven by their core attitudes. Again, those attitudes being control and entitlement and ownership. Now, people say all the time, right, do do abusers know what they're doing? If they are not doing the same things at work, if they're not doing the same things in front of people, 
If, for example, you go to a party and you have, you know, you're having a really good time and you're getting like side eye and glances or slight grimaces that other people may not pick up on, and then you leave the party and you get a litany of all the things that you did wrong, yeah, he knows exactly what the fuck he's doing. That's what my ex did to me every single social outing for 10 years. If they're doing it in covert ways around other people and then overtly when you're alone, he knows exactly what the fuck he's doing. Lundy goes on to say abusers are unwilling to be non-abusive, not unable. They do not want to give up power and control. And then the last point he makes in this chapter is you are not crazy. Trust your perceptions of how your abusive partner treats you and thinks about you. Trust your perceptions. And that's one of the hardest things because you spend your life with someone who is telling you to not trust your perceptions. You spend your life with someone who's turning out the lights and then telling you that the lights are not out until you go crazy. So your only way out is to trust perceptions that are being systematically destroyed. This is why emotional abuse is so fucking dangerous. It's not hopeless, right? Because what you'll see, and if you're in my Facebook group, you know this. You start to hear other women's stories. This is why I'm talking about this. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about it because the more we talk about it, the more we go, oh, fuck. I'm not alone. I recognize that. I feel that. I see that in thousands of women. There are 7,000 women in my Facebook group right now who are all having very similar experiences. And when women talk about things and we relate to each other and each other's stories, that's when we rise up and say, oh, hell no. No fucking more. And we'll do it individually in our individual relationships. And then we will do it as a whole. And listen, we're, you know, we're at the point now where women are not getting remarried, y'all. We're just not because we're fucking tired. We're tired of the labor. You know, it doesn't really serve marriage doesn't really serve women all that well. Marriage serves men. They get remarried very, very quickly because they need us. But they're marrying like young and they're marrying younger women because those women haven't quite gotten to this place yet of, wait a minute. Right. Point being, we have to use our voices. We have to be loud. We have to talk about this stuff. Talk about it. Listen, talk about it in in very um, safe places first. Learn how to talk about it. You know, I'm not suggesting that you get on Instagram and you start talking about your emotionally abusive marriage that you're still in. But get into my Facebook group and start having conversations with other women and find your power and find your voice. Find your ability to trust your perceptions. Find the validation that you need to be able to say, no, the lights are off, motherfucker, and you turned them off. No more. The link to join my Facebook group is in the show notes, or if you just go to Facebook and search, should I stay or should I go? It'll come up. You'll see my face in the picture. That is a place to begin. That is a place to start. Another place to start is to just confide in someone you trust, even if it's just one person. 
right? Start sharing your stories. That is how we shift this and we end this. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.